but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Today we are going to be practicing efficiency. We are hoping to record, edit, and publish the quickest we ever have in preparation. I've already made dinner. Mm -hmm. It's waiting on us and uh, we want to get through this as quickly as possible. <laughs> wow, quite an intro. Yeah, it's been a lot. This tournament has been a lot. The 2021 French Open has brought a lot of mess. It's felt never-ending, and it's definitely dampened our ability to enjoy the tennis. We're not going to be covering Naomi's withdrawal, because we already did one and a half episodes about that. All fresh out of insights. So this episode will be insight-free, just in general. Well, I don't like know. Like, no insights at all. I don't know about all that. <laughs> This tournament has felt cursed from the jump between the strange, empty night sessions, the, you know, the Federer withdrawal that people are mad about, the Musetti retirement today, which is weird and confusing, even if you're watching live. It's just been strange. The drama of going through seven rounds, potentially, with Serena in search of 24, we no longer have that to contend with mm -hmm. for week two. We got news about Holger Rune today. Yesterday? Yesterday. Yesterday. Right in the middle of Pride Month. <laughs> it was... That was a lot to deal with. You know, like, I was just trying to enjoy my day. So we'll get through a lot of the stuff that's happened at the French Open. I feel like a lot of our show is negative a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and... Prior to this event, I was reflecting on that. And then now I'm just like, it's not necessarily a reflection on us as negative people. Stuff just keeps happening. I in general, yeah, I don't think so. Right in front of our salad. Uh, and a lot of the stuff we are going to talk about, I'm not actually mad about. Mm -mm. You know, it's just interesting. Like, it's germane to what's going on in tennis. Like, the federal withdrawal, I really don't care about, but we're going to talk about it. Agreed. And they also provide opportunity to maybe bring up some actually useful whatabouts. Right. You know, may point out certain things that could be done differently rather than, luckily for us, be genuinely mad about it. Mm. So just a kind of a brief recap of where we are and how we got here. The rounds of 16 on both the men's and women's draws are done. We've got, uh, you know, on the women's side, only one top 10 seed left, who happens to be the defending champion, Iga Shriantek. On the men's side, it looks quite a bit more normal. Yeah, uh, you could make the case that the only strange quarterfinalist on the men's side is the number two player in the world. <laughs> right. Medvedev, who said he hates clay, who's been very unsuccessful on the surface, just kind of waltzed into the quarterfinals here. Playing really good tennis. 
And I've seen a lot of folks refer to this development as some sort of intentional long con by Mr. Medvedev. That he <laughs> talked down his chances all the while knowing that this was on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Or in the realm of possibility, mm-hmm. at least. The other surprising quarterfinalist, of course, is Davidovich Fokina, who makes his first slam quarterfinal beating Delbanis, beating clay fave Kasper Rude. Sure, that. sure, but he's played well this year. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying he's not the name you expected to be here in the quarterfinals. I'm just saying it's not a total shock. Uh, okay, well, we're not going to nitpick about that. <laughs> just to say that the the men's quarterfinals are not full of massive surprises, right? We have Djokovic Berrettini, uh, Nadal playing Schwartzman in a rematch of what was a semifinal last year, Zverev Davidovich, and then Tsitsipas versus Medvedev. But hold up. Neither is the women's side. The women's side is devoid of top-ranked players, sure, but only really Zidanecek is somebody you'd kind of be like... And and even Zidanecek was runner-up at the Bogotá tournament earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So she has not come out of nowhere either. You know, she beat Xie uh, Suwei twice in Madrid. Once in qualifying yes. and once in the main draw. Like, she's had some quality wins this clay season. We've talked on this show before that for the last year or so, at least since the resumption of tennis, that the players who are playing well on a week-to-week basis or for extended stretches on the WTA are not the ones who are reflected in the top 10. So if we keep that in mind, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of these players have been playing well over the last 12 months. Yeah, on the WTA side, it's almost more appropriate to look at it as a top 30. You know, pick someone out of the top 30 and don't be surprised if they get to the quarters or semifinals. We'll start with the men. This seems like ages ago, but Dominic Team, a runner-up in 2019 and 2018, lost in the first round to Pablo Andujar. And none of the upsets were as big as that one. But Andre Rublev going out to Struff in the first round was also a shocker. Not nearly on the scale of team going out in the first round no. of the French Open. No, no. Granted, Andohar had just beaten Federer in Roger's return to tennis. So mm-hmm. he scores wins over Federer and team in close succession. Not bad for a gentleman that's, what, 35? 35, uh, almost left the game a few years ago because of a succession of injuries and surgeries that could have knocked him out. Previewing this tournament, everybody's talking about, well, what do we expect from Dominic Team? And it could have gone one of two ways. It could have gone, well, he's not nearly in the shape that he typically is, and we shouldn't expect much from him especially given the the struggles, the emotional and mental struggles that he told us about in coming back and staying on track after winning the U.S. Open mm-hmm. and continuing to go through COVID bubbles. He told us, right? Yep. But then there's the other thinking that, well, this is Dominic Team on clay, and if he, if he can even get through a few rounds, then he'll be fine. Right. But Struff is a really difficult first-round opponent, and for his part, he made it all the way to the round of 16, losing to Schwartzman. Felix Auger-Aliassime, who's been working with Tony Naral, lost to Seppi in the first round, which 
This tournament has become a historic achievement for Italian men, which we'll talk about in a second. But also, that's just not a good scene for Felix. It's really not. Bautista Gut went out early to Laksanen. You mentioned Kasparud losing to Davidovich Fokina. And one of the dark horses, probably the, the dark horse that everybody was looking at, Karatsev losing to Cole Schreiber. Yeah, I was just thinking a few weeks ago, I wasn't sure if he was still playing. I haven't heard his name in so long. But apparently he's still here, causing huge upsets at the French Open, as he does. The round of 16 matchups on the men's side, Djokovic beat Muzetti. Berrettini got a walkover from Federer. We'll talk about that. Nadal beat Sinner again, like he did last year in the quarterfinals, this time in the round of 16. Diego Schwartzman, like you said, beat Struff. That's the top half. On the bottom half, uh, that fellow with his last name starting with a Z, Z, if you're saying it, he beats Nishikori just shockingly easily. Davidovich Fokina beats Delbonis, Tsitsipas over Karenio Busta, and Medvedev over one of the players who who could have come through that bottom half, Christian Garin. Mm-hmm. But Garin still kind of having a block in majors. If this hadn't been Medvedev, I wouldn't have been super surprised to see Garin lose at this stage. But to lose so meekly was a bit surprising. I'm surprised nonetheless. And the thing that I took away from watching Garin this tournament is that his game at this level, he we've seen him play well at smaller events. Mm-hmm. He's ranked in accordance. Yeah, right? and has, I think he has like five titles. His game at this level is kind of toothless, which I, I don't know what you do about that. Like, where, what are his weapons to really hurt these guys in a best of five, even on clay? He didn't mm-hmm. show us that this tournament. And I don't know, and I don't think it's all mental with him. This has been an important tournament for Italian men's tennis. Three Italian men, for the very first time in history, have made the fourth round of a major. Berrettini, who got a walk over to the quarterfinals. Musetti, who lost to Djokovic today. And Sinner, who lost to Nadal. And Berrettini is the first Italian man in history to reach the quarterfinals at all four slams. And he's done it pretty early in his career. Mm-hmm. I saw somebody ask, what what is this generation of Italian men called? And... I don't, I don't know if they have a name yet, but as they have Do kind of Do you have been, one to posit? Yes, I think we should call them very plainly i principi, the princes, because they have been birthed by the queens of Italian women's tennis, Schiavone, Panetta, and I hate to say it, but Errani and Vinci. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those women Hello, had... Camilla Giorgi. Oh, okay. Uh, Those women won Fed Cup multiple times, paved the way for this great generation of young Italian men. Mm. And those young men often cite those women as an inspiration. Mm. And their success precipitated huge investments in the the ground level of tennis in Italy. Yes. As, As witnessed and evidenced by just how many challenger events there are in Italy. Yep. All right, so Roger Federer beat Dominic Kupfer in the third round in a night match. Nobody was there, as the night matches have gone this past week. Because they're curfews. Yeah, 
I I will say, uh, sure. Totally respect that. You know, public health, that's important. The decision to host night matches for the very first time this year is a strange one in light of that. We know that the French Federation is eternally optimistic in what they can achieve. Pandemic? No problem. We'll just move it to the fall. Mm-hmm. They, they can find solutions. The real issue here for me is, why is it starting at 9 p.m.? <laughs> that is wild to me. But what problem is this solving? I guess you wanted to grab another time slot and maybe... You it's know, money. Yeah, but the matches... I mean, it's not always their fault. Sometimes the scheduling is at fault, but you got one match, and if that one match is not interesting, your night session is a total bust. And because there's no crowd, there's just such a lack of energy. Yes. We go through this with the U.S. Open every year as right, well, but with the night sessions, the US and they Open, have a crowd. But the U.S. Open, this is not. This is certainly not. Sure, but I want you to recall just how much we complain about the scheduling at the U.S. Open at night and how lackluster it often is. Nothing compared to what it was like when we first got into tennis. Right. And, when and you had the American stars at night under the lights. Like, it's it's a common problem that slams hosting night sessions have to deal with. Oh, sure. You but never why know. Why are you starting at 9 p.m.? Oh, okay. Anyway, the net result has been weird scenes where... Players are out on court with no fans, just a couple people in their boxes. And it's an inauspicious debut for this brand of tennis at the French Open. And it just adds to the cumulative weirdness of the tournament so far. Right. So Roger Federer played a long four-set match against Kupfer. He was out there for three and a half hours. And the next day decided to withdraw from the tournament to preserve his body He's coming off a few knee surgeries. He wasn't sure how far he would make it in this tournament, Mm -hmm. and he decided to withdraw. He told us even the day of that third-round match that, hey, this is something I'm considering. (laughs) Right. Now, uh, let's not over-dramatize this, right? Understandably, people are annoyed at the reason for the withdrawal and the tournament's response now my position is the guy is 40 years old and he doesn't really owe anything more to the sport than what has already been given so if you want to play a few rounds at the french open and then be on your merry way on grass that's understandable to me now the disproportionate response to something like naomi's announcement about not going to press that's where people are mad and I totally get that. Because Roland Garros... Because they're right. Yes. Because Roland Garros replied... I mean, didn't really make any mention it was of Roger's withdrawal. and was like, okay, thanks for coming. Bye. We've come, we've come to learn that the great Roger Federer, goat of tennis, has decided in his grand wisdom to not play forward at this event. And uh, because we love him dearly and want the best for him, we accept this wholeheartedly. Godspeed, King. <laughs> that was there was no midnight Zoom sessions with the four Grand Slams figuring out what right. the hell are we gonna do to How keep this we, man in we check. Reply to this, and he's ruining the sport. Like even the French Federation is not going to trash Roger Federer publicly on an international level. They're just not. 
He said he made this decision because he was listening to his body. Naomi made her decision because she was listening to her mind. Could this be any more clear as day in terms of a comparison between the two, mind and body, and how concerns about both are met in different ways by the governing bodies in tennis? Mm -hmm. Avril Lavigne said, can I make it any more obvious? And so on our last episode, we said, I think we closed the episode by saying, I think once everybody's had a minute, taken a, a day or two to think about this Naomi situation, it'll become even clearer that this was such a gross overreaction by everybody involved. And this just goes to highlight that even more. Mm -hmm. Roger gave us like such a good comparison to show how we all showed our asses in this moment. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, he could have not played at all. He came here, he gave them a few rounds, he gave them a good match in the third round, and uh, then peaced out. Because, listen, at his age, grass is more important. Like, point blank, period. And some people feel that he's disrespected this tournament. I feel maybe this tournament deserves a little wig-tugging. Deserves a little disrespecting. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm not saying that to be flippant. I'm saying, what do you owe this or any tournament if it imperils your body? The, you know, your probably short future in the sport. What do you owe them? What, what does the French Open care about your knees? Right. But again, like with Naomi, I think we are missing the point in who... Or what we shine the light on here. Okay. It's not about the player. The player drives all the action in tennis, mm. really, right? It's a player-centric sport. When Roger does this, the response is not to be, well, what an evil man. Screw him. How dare he? It's to look at the rules, the conditions that allow this to happen. Like, if you don't think that this should be allowed, what should be different? Mm. Should we allow Kupfer to play in the fourth round? And folks are like, well, he already lost. He had every opportunity to beat him and he didn't. Okay, but we fill draws with lucky losers all the time. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned that Zidanecek beat Shesue twice. <laughs> in the same in qualifying. Yeah. And then she got in as a lucky loser and then she beat her again. So mm -hmm. like, this is not without precedent. And also just because something hasn't been done before... Or, because it's been done this way since the dawn of man, doesn't mean that we can't now do things differently. Let us not fall into another trap of a vacuum of noise mm. when we don't like look at how things can actually be changed to avoid this in the future. Yeah, because a lot of the commentary is focused on the individual level, saying, oh, you know, Jimmy Connors retired from a match to give his opponent the win because he knew he couldn't go on or whatever like okay that happens does that mean that everybody is expected to behave the same way i don't think so i think it would be an amazing thing to do but you're not required to do that the french open has been running tournaments for decades this is not the first time that a player would have withdrawn and created a hole in your right. schedule it's and just draw. that it's roger and he was honest about why he was withdrawing. It's not that I simply cannot play. Mm. It's I have chosen not to play because I have to think about the future. They have had, we know these Grand Slams meet all the time, at least a few times a year. 
They've had experience with this. They could have taken steps to make changes so that if this were to happen, they're not left with one less high-profile match to fill their schedule. They're able to do something about it. Tennis and why it's so strange and frustrating is that we seem to have the same problems happening over and over and over again, and people scream from the mountaintop. And then we do it all over again. Mm. And that goes for fans, and that goes for the organizations, and that goes for the players as well. Everybody involved is just screaming all the time about what's wrong, and very little gets done. So in this instance, my inclination is to again turn the lens on the institution. All right. Because Roger's gonna, Roger should do what's best for him at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned honesty, radical candor. That was practiced by Lorenzo Musetti today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this was so weird. I was watching this match. Musetti won the first two sets against Djokovic. And then the, I mean, the next two sets were over in a flash. A blink and you missed them. He won something like four points in the fourth set. And it, so it looks like Djokovic is going to be marching to a very, very quick victory after those two lost sets. And Musetti just retires down love four in the fifth. And I was watching and I'm thinking, what the hell just happened? Like, I must have looked away for a few minutes because I don't know what's going on. And he wasn't in peak physical condition, but it didn't look like he, you know, he couldn't play. So my first reaction was to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, he must have been really injured because he withdrew or Or because he retired. Or injured at all. Right. Like, if we're, if we're granting players the grace to listen to their bodies and their minds, like, we're not going to be here questioning you. Right. Point However, is, my, my reaction was confusion, mm-hmm. not judgment. It was just like, oh, I didn't... But where it I becomes must have strange... Where it becomes strange is that in the post-match press conference, he said, no, no, it's not an injury. It's, well, just a little bit of cramps and a little bit of low back pain. I was not any more able to win a point. Grateful also for the crowd that was there, so I decided to retire. Oh. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, so then, why is Federer allowed radical honesty, but this young man isn't? <laughs> I just had to laugh when I read that, because this... Musetti has been known for being very frank, and that, not to make a broad generalization, but that could be a, a cultural difference. Many Italians can be very blunt, just a different way of looking at the the post-match press conference experience. I just don't know why he would say that. Like, I appreciate that he was telling his truth, but most players in that situation learn that they have to lie because otherwise you're retiring for no good reason and you risk censure or discipline. This was one more thing that the timeline was miffed and upset about today. And when I tell you I did not have the bandwidth to care at all today... That couldn't be more true. (laughs) No, my reaction was just kind of bemused. Like, oh, he really said that. But if you think about it, if he felt he could not win one single point for the rest of the match, and he mentioned there were some cramps and low back pain, that's enough for retirement, I guess. He just didn't feel like playing the the final two games. Not necessarily. Maybe it's just the way he's expressing himself. Mm -hmm. He mentioned that he was struggling physically with some stuff. It may not have been like... A debilitating injury, per right. se. I, I struggle to 
to find the big deal. No, I just found it amusing how bluntly he responded to this question. Djokovic will play Berrettini in the quarterfinals. The winner of that match will play the winner of Nadal and Schwartzman, which means we are on course still for a semifinal between Djokovic and Nadal. Nadal looks in pretty good form, save for like a, a couple stretches within a few of his matches where he becomes a little bit too tentative. In that first set against Sinner today, he quickly went up to love, but then Sinner was able to bring that uber aggression where he's timing and clocking everything from the baseline at a rate of knots. And that kind of pegged Nadal on the back foot before he regrouped and won the set. That's that's like the only thing to really look for. Today, the, the double faults were a problem. He had seven. He was visibly annoyed by them. But overall, if you're getting through Sinner in straight sets with the third set being a bagel, and you're up a double break in both the second and the third, it's as low stress as he could possibly maybe hope for at this stage. Mm -hmm. If you are us, you are hoping that Davidovich Fokina has one more big win in him against the person whose name starts with Z or Z. <laughs> and plays either Medvedev or Tsitsipas, who is the odds-on favorite to reach the final on the bottom half. Mm -hmm. Shall we move on to the women? Mm -hmm. On the women's side, we've seen Coco Goff reach her first slam quarter, Maria Sakari defeat Kennan, last year's runner-up, the winner of last year's Australian Open, Pavlyuchenkova, who has capitalized on this win over Sabalenka, carrying through another big win over Azarenka, and has put another notch in her belt on a very impressive career for someone who has not even been ranked in the top 10, but has multiple runs to the second week of slams. The thing is, she was a prodigy. Mm -hmm. She was junior world number one at 14 years old, winning a couple junior slams. More was expected of her. What we have now is a Pavlyuchenkova who's made seven career quarterfinals at slams, yet to make a semifinal. Uh, this could be her first. She's had a great doubles career. It's not a disappointing career by any stretch. She's still only, I say only, because this is tennis in 2021 she's only 29 this could this could spring her into another echelon in her career today the run of 16 matches where Goff beat Jabor Krejcikova beat Stevens Sakari beat Kennan and Shvantec beat Kostyuk the closest match was Shvantec beating Kostyuk 6-3 6-4 they were all mm. pretty mm -hmm. much well the other three were definitely routes that's the top half the bottom half Rybakina beat Serena in straight sets. Pavlyuchenkova, like you said, beat Azarenka. Zidanshak beat Kirstea. And Paula Badosa beats Vondrosova. So, like, in the in the annals of tennis history, not a lot of big names on the women's side. But these are people who either have played well at the French before or have been playing well recently. Kirstea just made her second final of the year last week. Losing in the final. You said Zidanshek made a final already this year in Bogota. Mm -hmm. Badosa has been one of the hottest players on clay all year. Rybakina, before the COVID interruption at the start of last year, she was going great guns. She yeah. was on a, 
not even an upward trajectory. It was almost like a 90-degree angle. <laughs> yeah. Krejcikova beat Kirstea last week in Strasbourg. Uh, Kirstea was the winner of Istanbul, the runner-up in Strasbourg. There's not, like you said, a lot of huge shocks here, but we are missing some of the big names. Obviously, Sabalenka, the winner of Madrid, was beaten by Pavlyuchenkova, bageled in the third set. Ash Barty came in here nursing an injury, retiring to Lynette in the second round. Bianca Andreescu. No one really knew what to expect. There were a series of withdrawals before the French Open. She lost to Zidanecek in the first round. 9-7 in the third. Yeah. And Zidanecek has uh, certainly made good on that first round upset. Sloan Stevens has lit a fire uh, under her entire career with this win. That is... With this tournament. So hyperbolic. No, for real. Uh, Like, no, and I'm not being unkind here. What was expected of Sloan here? This? I'm not surprised by this. Okay. She had been playing incrementally better. And it's Clay, and it's Sloan. Like, we know what she can do. We do, but that doesn't mean that she always does it. Again, it's a fourth round. We're talking about a fourth round performance for a slam winner here. Uh, okay, have you been following Miss Stevens in the past I few have. years? I'm just saying. I'm saying because I have been following her this year, I have seen her play better from tournament to tournament. Yes. It was, a, it was just about the right time for her to put style together. No disrespect to her, mm-hmm. credit to her. She had a first round against Carlos Juarez Navarro, which on paper should be an easy win, but emotionally is not an easy win. Also... Carla Suarez Navarro played really well. Right. She really had no business playing that well. None whatsoever. <laughs> Carla is coming back from treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. She underwent chemo. She announced that she was going to play Roland Garros, and I had to double check that it was true. She came back and she looked to be in great shape, played a great match against Sloan, taking her to 6 4 in the third set. It happened at night, and unfortunately there weren't really fans there, so it felt anticlimactic. I just wish there had been some sort of fanfare for Carla's return. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I don't know, a cake? Anything. Like, <laughs> it seemed like maybe they made a big deal behind the scenes in the clubhouse or whatever, but it seemed like Roland Garros didn't really have any large ceremony to welcome Carla back. They didn't have... Anything to celebrate Nadal for his birthday. It was... They've dropped a lot of celebratory moments. Uh, right. Um, but Sloan, you know, after beating Carla, she beat Karolina Pliskova in straight sets. Karolina Mukova, which I, I felt like that was a huge hump to get over. And then in the round of 16, it was kind of puzzling. Losing 6-2, 6-love to Krejcikova. Except for Krejcikova has been beating everybody recently okay I, I don't know i mean it's you're just you know it's impossible to surprise you about anything you've seen it all <laughs> in an early round upset that you will enjoy kazatkina beat benchich well it's what she deserved frankly <laughs> muguruza having trouble coming back from this injury lost to marta kostiuk in the first round who again made good on her upset yep making the fourth round losing to Sviantek today and patrick vidova was not upset, but she had to withdraw early in the tournament 
because she slipped during her press responsibilities. She won her first round match, saving match point, goes to press, and somewhere in that time, slips and injures her ankle and has to withdraw from Mm -hmm. the tournament. It is truly unbelievable. I still don't believe it. Coming so soon after the kerfuffle over Naomi's withdrawal from press responsibilities and then the tournament itself. This is the type of thing that you see an Onion headline written about. Yeah. The Naomi thing happens and then the Onion writes this headline. So when it was popping up on my timeline, it truly was difficult to believe that it was real. Right. And it felt way too soon and way inappropriate to make that joke. But it's almost as if the universe made that joke. Venus lost her first round match to number 32 seed Alexandrova. And I have nothing to add by way of analysis because it happened so quickly. And when I tell you it was difficult to watch, that is an understatement. I don't want to pile on by being too negative and downtrodden about it, but it was just not good. You know, a lot of folks say, for example, when Serena's playing, there's always this duality. There's the folks who are saying, well, the minority of folks who are like, well, Serena's not playing that badly. And then the rest of the army who are saying, wow, Serena is playing like trash. (laughs) There was no disagreement as to how this match went for Venus and why it got there. Mm. Like it was plain as day for everybody. Serena made the fourth round, losing in straight sets to Rybakina. I'll let you talk about this one. So I watched that match yesterday, and I know that the timeline was, uh, you know, halfway through, sort of threw up their hands, and it's it's a lot of doom and gloom. It's a lot of Serena's playing like a junior, or she looks horrible. And I didn't feel that she looked horrible. Uh, Clearly her movement was hampered a bit by that thigh strapping, But I'm the kind of fan who feels that she can win at any point. Except for when you leave the room and go upstairs when you decide that she can't. (laughs) In the U.S. Open final. Yes. If it's a U.S. Open final, my belief is very low. Or if Bianca is on the other side of the net. But in general, I'm a very optimistic fan. And even though she lost the first set against Rubakina, I thought, well, this was close. And then she stormed back early in the second set for... A few games, well, probably two. (laughs) She was blasting Elena off the court. So she proved that she can do it. It's just not sustained, right? This is what happens with athletes of a certain age, that it's really difficult to sustain that level of play for an entire match. So at some points, her serve and ground strokes were like, oh my god, she looks like the best player out there. And then it's the opposite. The expectation is that Serena's going to show up like the Serena who almost double bagels Maria Sharapova at the 2012 Olympics right. every time. It's not going to happen. That's the expectation. We have to, we really have to accept the idea of her winning ugly and sometimes very ugly. And that that can still be a good performance. It, it, a good right. Serena performance does not have to be a blitz. It does not have to be the peak Serena has ever played. No. We have to adapt to where she is now. And look how many majors she won winning ugly and looking not that great. I'm not that pessimistic coming off this loss. Rybakina is a baller, obviously. Mm -hmm. I will say that in our little 
tennis friend group, I was the most pessimistic about this match. <laughs> I did feel <laughs> Because that... I watched her play Vesnina and that was some performance mm-hmm. that Rybakina put in. If you had forgotten what she can do, she showed us. Mm-hmm. I felt that Serena was going to win. Like, that was my prediction. But I wasn't super surprised and I'm not very depressed over the loss. I do think... I didn't really see the fight late in the second set. Like, I thought it was going to be more difficult for Rybakina to reach match point. And then she, you know, she won the match on her first match point. I expected a little bit more drama mm. toward the end there. And it, it wasn't there. See, the problem here is the degree to which she is injured. That's what is concerning. Because we are only a little over two weeks away from the start of Wimbledon. So there isn't a whole lot of time to recuperate an injury that looks like it could be a hamstring injury. That's not great. Who knows? Uh, I mean, Wimbledon is probably her best shot at a major or the Australian Open, depending on how you look at it. As a fan, I have sort of accepted that 24 may not happen. And it's fine. It's taken a long time to get there. She has the record. It's sewn up. And 24 would be uh, the cherry on top. But if we don't get there, I hope she enjoys the journey at least. Look, she's got cinnamon rolls at home. She doesn't need that cherry. (laughs) (laughs) I want to close this segment on talking about the woman's draw by giving a big up to Anna Bogdan. Self-serving, because early in the year I tweeted that I think it was uh, her match against Ash Barty. She lost in straight sets, but she put up a real good fight. And I tweeted that it's... It's crazy to watch Anna Bogdan play and then you go look up her career and then you're completely shocked that she's never won a WTA title. And sure, her forehand may not be that great. It's the weakness in her ground game. The backhand is world class. World class. And the match that she played against Paula Badosa will go down as one of the matches of the tournament. I saw folks on Twitter describe it as... I think it was Hypotamuse on Twitter saying that every tournament... One of these matches comes along, and it's usually not expected. It's usually at night. It's usually with not a whole lot of fans there. It's usually with a very small audience, (laughs) you know? And these women just delivered. Unfortunately for Bogdan, she had had leads. She had match point, and she was not able to do it. I think there's this crazy stat this year that 30-plus women on the WTA have saved match point to go on and win in 2021. (laughs) I hope that Bogdan is able to take it a, a notch further in her career because she's she's fun to watch. Looking ahead, we've got Goff versus Krejcikova and Sakari versus Shrontek on the top half. On the bottom half, it's Rybakina versus Pavlyuchenkova and Zidanshek versus Badosa. Those are your quarterfinals. By the time you've listened to this episode, you may already know the winners. Let's move on to the Etceteras. Early on, the number one men's doubles team, Mektic and Pavic, had to withdraw because they tested positive for COVID-19. Feels like a real throwback. But COVID-19 is, uh, in fact, still the pandemic du jour. Pavic also had to withdraw from Mixed with Gabby Dabrowski. She was able to grab another partner, but he's out of both draws. Something we won't talk too well at all really about on this episode. Maybe we'll know more about it by the end of the tournament, but news came today that there's, what, an investment firm that's looking to invest all this money and unite the tours under one Mm -hmm. umbrella? 
We're going to cover that. $600 million? Yeah, we're going to cover that when we know a bit more about it. The coverage from the United States, from Tennis Channel in particular, the pivot from the Naomi Osaka story at the start of the event was to tell us just how amazing, sweetie, the American men were doing at Roland Garros. How after damn near 25 years of mediocrity, save for a couple of male players who made the top 10 and and erotic who made slam finals and won one slam mm-hmm. title. Andre that... Agassi won this thing, you remember, <laughs> 22 years ago. They were here to extol the the achievements of the American men when in fact I'm sitting here and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, what a stretch, what a leap to be force-feeding us this narrative when in fact they have just made one advancement on their decades-long ladder of mediocrity. Which was what? Making, I don't even know, like <laughs> eight of them made the second round. Oh, okay. It was like, it was wild, wild to me. Okay. Now in the interval, as the Brits say, I told you that this didn't have any news value because no one would find it surprising. Something that does have news value <laughs> is Tennis Channel's uh, further entrenchment into the world of betting, which you observed. Would you like to take this away? Sure. I'm, if you've been watching the Tennis Channel, you know how betting has just become the de facto way to frame the tennis coverage. They're sponsored by Drag drag Kings. Wow. Draft Kings. <laughs> if only. <laughs> that Bogdan Badosa match that I was telling you about. After the second set, when Badosa came back and won that second set, saving match point, they cut to Stefanos Tsitsipas, who was on the practice court earlier that day, to show him stretching out wide to the forehand, and then right afterward, just doing a little bit of wincing and touching his ribcage. Without any context, without telling you if he's like, fine, any further information. And then Jason Goodall brings it back to the broadcast and then immediately pivots to the betting odds of that match. So they've, <laughs> they're have they previewing a night match that's coming in a couple hours. They've told the viewers who may be betting on this match, there might be something wrong with Tsitsipas. He might be injured. You might want to change your bet. You might want to like risk house and home and make millions tonight. Like that's what, that, that is crazy behavior to me. Yeah, because it's so out in the open now. They have in-studio segments where they ask each other about the quote over under for how many games per set somebody's going to win. Like they literally had Chanda sat there answering these questions. Well, what do you think is over under on how many games so-and-so's going to win tonight? Meanwhile, that's an actual betting category. Mm. And then this happened on the very same day that Yana Sizikova, a Russian tennis player ranked 101 in doubles was arrested at the French Open on site the very same day for alleged match-fixing from the previous French Open last fall. (laughs) But, like, nobody in tennis leadership sees or is allowed to mention that there is an irony at play here. That Tennis Channel going all-in on betting is at odds with the Tennis Integrity Unit's investigations on players who engage with betters and make money off of that we have tournament officials when 
fans are allowed on site, paying attention to these stragglers who show up to these events and sit courtside and relay information in real time, like a few seconds ahead of time before the results become publicly known on apps and whatnot to affect betting. And folks have been kicked out and banned. Yeah, they're because known of as that. Uh, courtsiders. But people. now we have that as part of the tennis coverage, in effect. <laughs> You're trying to get us sued. It's not quite that bad, but it is uh, pretty openly engaging with the betting world because there's a lot of money in it. And the thing is, it's become very accepted from a lot of sports organizations, networks, even newspapers now to make money off betting because, especially for the newspaper industry, the money is drying up. We need new revenue streams. Oh, here's one. And some networks, some outlets try to preserve the integrity of their product. Others don't. So that's what you're seeing in Tennis Channel. There's no attempt to preserve the integrity of the actual product. We learned last year during the French Open that there was a doubles match in the first round that was under scrutiny and that it was the one involving Brengel and Sizikova and I think it was a Romanian pair that were playing. And you didn't really know who was under the microscope. Mm. And now we know. She was arrested the Thursday. She was released the Friday by the French police without charges. Yeah. So I don't I don't know a lot about the French justice system, obviously. <laughs> BBC reported that she's suspected of sporting corruption and fraud, both of which carry a possible prison sentence of up to five years and fines well into the six figures. It's strange to me that you go to the, the lengths to arrest a tennis player on site and not have the charges stick. Mm, mm. I don't know. Like watching the various SVUs, law and orders, over the years, like that doesn't seem like a good way to go about What it, have you me. ever seen Law & Order, Perry? <laughs> no, you haven't. So let's stick to things that you know. Something that we do know is that folks should not be out here throwing around gay slurs on a tennis court. During Pride Month? Right in front of my salad? I was not prepared for this shitstorm. And the thing that was probably most disappointing to me is that the way it was reported, folks were writing out all six letters of the F word, sometimes in caps, in tweets, with no trigger warnings, no nothing, in the middle of pride, with no concern for who may see this. I don't understand. Like, you don't understand that some people have a really visceral reaction to that word? So, what we're talking about is Holger Rune, the young Danish player, during a, a challenger event last weekend, which he won. During the semifinal, he screamed, Allez... And then this word that we are told is basically the Danish equivalent of the F slur, the homophobic slur. And was he saying it to himself, to his opponent? I don't know. I don't really care. He used He was it. allegedly saying it to himself. Right. It's like... Either way, it's not really cool. It calls to mind when Justin Thomas was hitting like a five-foot putt and missed oh, it. yes. And just called the ball the F word. Right. And it was picked up by the cameras. Does it matter if he was talking to the ball or himself? No. It doesn't. Because why Why are these words at the tip of your tongue when something goes wrong, right? This was at the Biella Challenger in Italy last weekend. I only found out about it because of the apologies, plural. Uh, and there are big scare quotes around the word apologies. <laughs> Holger uh, put something on Instagram. You say that because 
A, there were non-apologies, and B, there were multiple of them. There were many edited and re-edited versions of the same apology. It was this classic non-apology that we see very often. He said, quote, I want to use the opportunity to apologize for using some bad words to myself in my semifinal yesterday. I love diversity more than anyone I know, and people that know me, they know that. Sorry for not being as perfect yet as you all expect. Like, what? Pull up. What? <laughs> First Listen. of all, let's be clear. The majority of people don't know who you are, sir. Yet. I mean. Like, you said something really offensive, and people are going to be mad about it, because this dredges up very painful memories for a lot of people. Understand that first. Apologize and move on. The apology and the several iterations of the same apology created a much bigger story than this had to be. I realize that you're 18 years old and 18-year-olds make mistakes. I don't know. I mean, I didn't make this mistake when I was 18, but still, 18-year-olds make stupid decisions. Consult with your team and come up with a better apology than that because this ain't doing it. He probably consulted with his mother. Did you read her, her message? Yeah, so his mother's message made it quite clear where he got this style of apology from in her Instagram post, which, by the way, was publicly supported by Patrick Muratoglu. Mm -hmm. Saying, don't let the haters get it you was, down. I mean, it was a paragraph of defensiveness. And I, I understand, like, she's going to support her son. But there was, like, no mention of the fact that the apology was not an apology. It was an, I apologize if you were offended. Sorry, you don't think I'm perfect, you snowflake losers. That you, was the equivalent of the apology. You know all these fan accounts on Twitter. Like, say, for example, Holger Rune stands. The same thing we saw when Zverev was faced with all those allegations. So many of these fan accounts are the ones holding these players to account. Right. I swear, Gen Z fandom is a whole different animal because these young kids are actually holding their favorite players responsible. Right, but you, based on the actions of some, it would be understandable to believe that it's impossible to break from these players or to have some separation or distance right. with anything that they do. For a lot of stands, it seems quite easy, actually, to criticize their faves. Patrick has a vested interest. Rune plays at his academy. Mm -hmm. why, do, why do you think he's out here commenting on this post? You know, it's so transparent. Yeah. I think the reason this struck a nerve with me and a lot of people is that we understand when we are being gaslit. Mm -hmm. People do not like to be treated as if they're stupid. You know, you read his mom's response, and this is not representative of reality, right? We read the original apology. We know it was snarky and sarcastic. Don't talk to us like we're stupid. And you too made the story way bigger than it had to be. And now you've made it something that's going to follow this kid. The ATP allegedly is investigating. Yeah. So I... And we'll see what happens with that. Well, this was reported by TV2 in Denmark, which uh, Holger's mom accused of engaging in drama and gossip. But TV2 reported that the ATP was investigating. Supposedly, the ATP's written response to, to TV2 was that the ATP is committed to ensuring an inclusive environment for all players, staff, and fans, and there is absolutely no room for homophobic remarks in tennis. And then they cite the uh, section of the Code of Conduct that was violated. We'll see what comes out of this from the ATP side, because 
either way, we'll have something to say about it. But what I want to say, especially since Holger's mother got involved here and said all that she said, I'm sure you've had this experience. I'm sure pretty much everybody listening has had this experience, be it a parent or a parent figure, an adult or a teacher. Somebody in your formative years has told you pretty much verbatim, don't you ever let me hear you say that word <laughs> again. Yeah. Or not even again, period, if you've yet to say it, right? Like there's certain words that you know that you should not be saying. And why is it that this gay slur has not been part of that equation to the extent needed for this shit to not happen? Mm -hmm. Like that is a failure of parenting. And so for this Pride Month, I would like this to be part of the mission going forward. Add this to the equation. Because it's 2021, like what are we doing here? And I feel from playing sports growing up, I feel like there's an outsourcing that parents do with parenting once their kids are involved in sport. There's this business of, well, we'll have the coach do that that parenting. You know, whatever's allowed there is allowed there. It's like its own world mm. onto itself. But no, the reason why we have these athletes doing this type of stuff, Justin Thomas, Hulgaroon, is because there's this very specific socialization that happens in sport. And how I know that that's the case is because I know that the younger generations know these Gen Zs that you talk about, they're doing better. They're not bothered by other generations' hatred for gay people. Right, right. Like that's their parents' burden mm -hmm. or generations before that. So um, where are these kids learning? They're learning it from their their education in sport. Like this hyper-masculine, toxic environment. Like that needs to be addressed as well. And parents have the ability to root that out. Be mindful of it and say, listen, if you ever hear that, you need to do the work yourself, Mr. Teenager, to root that out. One of the feel-good stories from week one could have been more feel-good had they won any matches but venus and coco play doubles that was pretty cool yeah yeah uh i would have loved to see that last longer but it's cool to see danielle collins we didn't mention this on the previous episode but she underwent surgery to remove a cyst caused by endometriosis barely eight nine weeks ago and she was here at roland garros competing really well endometriosis is a condition that actually affects up to 10 percent of women around the world and can cause really debilitating pain. So it's kind of amazing that she was competing at all, and that she's been suffering with this for so long. I also want to talk about how how Danielle Collins has gone from suspicious MAGA person. Under suspicion of being MAGA. Okay. Be, you know, just be precise with okay. your language. To just being a straight-up villain in tennis. To then being a likable villain. To now being damn near fully universally embraced on tennis twitter right. <laughs> like right. such a transformation in less than two years right. it's crazy it's such a it's a fascinating story to follow and at the risk of sounding cliched here people really appreciate authenticity and i feel that's what danielle gives all the time i really do feel like she's giving you close to her authentic self and a lot of serena fans were like Please, please, Miss Collins, don't scream in our faces. But it wasn't like, we hate you. It was like, we find your commands hilarious, but please don't embarrass us. 
And the two times that she's played Serena recently, not a peep. Yeah, very deferential. And I almost wonder if it would help her to be more demonstrative. Ahead of that third round match, folks wanted a Kamanathon. Yeah, yeah. They were looking, it was at a point where Danielle was so embraced that it would have been welcomed. The two of them screaming at each other across the net. (laughs) And it just didn't happen. Uh, You pointed out this to me. I totally missed this. Jamila Jamil, who routinely gets owned on Twitter and Instagram for sort of uh, tone-deaf statements. She's one of the most obnoxious celebrities in the world. (laughs) I think that's what you're alluding to. What did she say this past week? Well, with the Naomi situation, she got vocally involved on Twitter. Mm -hmm. As did many of the... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, the locals, so to speak, or non-tennis people. Eventually, she tweeted that we should boycott the French Open. <laughs> and at the time, folks were like, what are you doing, ma'am? <laughs> ma'am. Mom. <laughs> take, a, take a moment, Jamilo. Okay. <laughs> and then somebody responded, like questioning her credentials to be saying something like that. And she responded by saying... I'll have you know, I go to Wimbledon every year. (laughs) Why is she Tahani in real life? It's crazy. So she was cast as the upper class, clueless British woman on The Good Place. Why is she that person in real life? I go to Wimbledon every year. Apologies to that woman if by some miracle she listens to this show. (laughs) And is actually more of a tennis fan. Love you on Good Place, man. We thought absolutely love you on Good Place. Spectacular job on that show. As to why she's on Legendary, less clear. As to why she can go to Wimbledon every year, very clear. <laughs> when the rest of us poors are stuck in line or begging for tickets. But see, folks were mad at her to begin with. But as the tournament progressed, folks are just showing that screenshot all over the place. Like Jamila was right. <laughs> Like, we needed to boycott this tournament yeah. because they are, yet again, playing in our faces right in front of our salad. <laughs> Sorry to you all in the United States who have to deal with Peacock and Peacock Plus. I mean, come on. This is absurd. Peacock Plus. Not only... There's a Peacock Plus. Yes. I didn't know. Not only is... Roland Garros being shared amongst many, many networks in the U.S. NBC outsourced the coverage this weekend to its streaming site. And then it turns out there's also a premium version of that streaming site. So it's like twice removed from NBC, the broadcast Mm. network. That sucks. It does. Because they had that cup for match against Federer on Peacock. Or Peacock Plus, which whichever one. <laughs> yes. And so the night session rolls around and folks can't watch it. We were just told about how not attending these press conferences would be the death knell for tennis. Right. No. Yet. No. You have Roger Federer playing in prime time at the French Open and nobody can watch it. Right. A country of 300 plus million people don't know where to find the damn match. Patrick Maradoglu tells us that the average age of a tennis watcher is like 97. Uh, <laughs> but what, those, what does are, that matter if are the nobody 90s, can watch it? Are the 97-year-olds finding Peacock Plus? Uh, I don't know. Also, the point is, these discussions are ba- they're just useless, futile, if you can't promote your product and have your product 
accessible to people. Yeah. Why do I care about your statistic about the age of the viewer if the viewing number is so suppressed because nobody's able... able it's not that nobody's watching it. It's that nobody's able to watch it. Like, what do I care about best of three or fast four or any sort of format changes if you can't even find the sport to begin with? It's crazy. The fragmentation of tennis broadcasting is the biggest threat to the success of the sport. Mm. Period. In the spirit of efficiency, I really think we should wrap up there. Yes. It's gone on a bit longer than we expected. And so? Thank you for listening. Till next time. Oh, Oh, that's it? (laughs) See, I was just playing, oh, okay. playing with you. Really quickly, I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. My name is Jonathan at tennis underscore John. I'll revert to my previous ending from two episodes ago. Just punch us into Google and you'll find whatever you need to your relevant interests regarding the body serve. Mm-hmm. Till next time. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.